It was, um, I was talking to Cherry and Nathan in the back before the service, and I was telling them how uh, every time they lead, I come to this place where I'm just like on the verge of just, you know? And now I have to get up here and preach? It seems um, that much of the gospel has been said already today. Jesus paid it all. Amen? Amen. How many people here from the Midwest? Grew up in the Midwest, kind of from there. All right, I, um, I apologize. I don't mean to offend you in any way. And um, in fact, if you disagree with anything that I say today, feel free to email John Ciccarelli at <laughs> calamesasda.com. He will gladly field all of your concerns. I'm, when I went to the seminary um, in Michigan, Southwest Michigan, I, there was one thing I didn't want to get influenced by, and it's that Midwestern accent. I was scared that two and a half years would cause me to come back with the Midwestern accent. Now, if you aren't familiar with the Midwestern accent, it goes something like this. Car is not car, it's car. Yard is not yard, it's yard. You know, it's kind of that nasally. It's not park, it's park. It's not not, it's not. So a sentence would go something like this. I am not going to park the car in the backyard. And I really didn't want to come back to California talking like that. Um, I think it's funny that um, Ted Schenkel came up to me the other day. No, not Ted Schenkel, sorry. No, 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 it was Tyler's father. Tyler's father. Tom, yes, Tom, came up to me after first service and says, he's from the Midwest, he says, like, I'm totally, like, not influenced by, like, the accent of, like, California. (laughs) Like, so... I deserve that. That's good. Very good. I, like, don't talk like that either, do I? I hope not. How? It's a Vegas accent. So what's a Vegas accent? We just say ding, 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 ding all the time. That's what we do. I, we are influenced by people around us, by the, our friends around us, by our family. I have this one friend I grew up with. We were pretty close. He used to do this thing. He would say, um... He would start a sentence saying something like, oh, the other day I was doing such and such. The problem is the other day wasn't really the other day. It was like, you know, two hours before or something like that. And so as I'm going through, you know, my teenage years, throughout my adult life, I find myself saying, yeah, you know what? The other day I saw this, um, but it wasn't really the other day. It was like 30 minutes ago. And I find myself doing these things that my friends do. Um, our, the people who are closest to us really do influence us. Let me ask you something. Um, well, let me, let, me, let me tell you this. Um, another thing about Michigan. Sorry, Midwesterners. I'm really picking, up, picking on you guys today. Another thing about Michigan. Um, when the spring comes, everything blooms in technicolor, including your allergies. 
I never knew that allergists existed until I spent a spring and summer in Michigan. I could not breathe. It was just really intense. And the possums come out, the skunks come out. Um, Dr. Pauline, you spent the time, some time there. The possums come out, the skunks come out, the, uh, the, the raccoons come out, the deer come out, and they promptly decide that whatever is most important in their lives is across the street on the other side, and you promptly flatten all of them. I'm sure you should see, they travel together, the possums, the skunks, and raccoons, and deer. It was really bizarre seeing them. No, they don't really do that. I'm just kidding. But um, it's, it's really just interesting how all these things come out in the spring. And then there are the bugs. Any of you who have lived in a sort of hot, humid climate know what I'm talking about with the bugs. Michigan has bugs. And in particular, there's this one insect flying wasp bee thing. So one day... Um, this is one of those stories where, are there any young people here, any high school people in here? All right, so how do all my stories start? I was driving. Ha! This time it's not me that was driving. I was teaching my girlfriend to drive. My girlfriend is Latoya. She's actually the new youth pastor at the La Sierra University Church as of last week. Um, so yeah, that's um, awesome. Congratulations. And... Um, so I was teaching her how to drive. And some of you are like, how in the world did she grow up not knowing how to drive? She's from Chicago. Any of you who have been in a big city know that having a car in a big city is more of a hassle than anything. You have to p- find a place to park it. You have to babysit it. You have to watch it. You have to, and when you decide to drive, there's really nowhere to go because it's gridlock. And then you have to find some place to park and pay for it over there. And it's just easier to get on a train. And so when she moved to Michigan, I was like, you realize this is the middle of nowhere. If any of you have been to Andrews, it's not really the middle of nowhere, but it's for, you know, artistic effect, we can say that. It's in the middle of nowhere. And so, and so you basically, like, the nearest Starbucks, not that, um, where we go to drink tea, um, <laughs> is, <laughs> um, like, 15, 20 miles away which you can't jump on a train and get there. Like, you have to actually get in a car and drive there. So I told Toya, you need to know the freedoms that driving brings. I will teach you how to drive. And so we get in the car. I'd like to say she has her driver's license passed on the first time because um, cause I'm a good teacher. No, um, so I'm, we're, te- we're learning, and then um, we're pulling into my, my, my house that I was renting there with some buddies, and the windows are down, and spring is in full effect. And this bee wasp thing that's like this big, I tried to find a picture of it online, but it creeped me out too much looking at all those pictures of wasps and bees and all these crazy things um, that I just had to stop because I'm still in therapy over this. Um, this thing, this big, flies into the car and starts buzzing up against the windshield like and, and here's something you need to know. Um, Toya is deathly afraid of insects. It is unnatural how afraid of insects she is. There is screaming that I have never heard before. Dogs are barking in Detroit. My eardrum has ruptured, basically. And then I realize it's because I'm screaming, too, that <laughs> this thing is 
mostly on my side. And then, and I'm like, okay. So I look at Toya, and she has the door open, and she is halfway out the car. Mind you, she's in the driver's seat, okay? And we're pulling into the driveway. All my roommates' cars are in the driveway. I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to sit here, and we're going to plow driverless through my roommates' cars. And, and then I realize that I'm not sitting. I'm actually, my door is open, and I'm halfway out the door. And I'm yelling, put it in park, put it in park, put it in park. And this thing is... And then it hits me. Why are you running away? You're not scared of insects. It's just a wasp. It's the size of a building, but it's just a wasp. And I realized it was her deathly fear of this thing that was influencing me. And I was running away from this because she was running away from this. The people around us, the things around us, the people closest to us influence what we do. Today we're looking at Ezra 9. Some of you um, are like, what is the book of Ezra? Is that like a band or something? No, it's actually a book. It's in the Bible. Um, it's, it's really interesting, this book, because it comes at a time when the, the Israelites have just been released by King Cyrus from Babylon, and Ezra is this prophet that's sort of been called to, to be on the scene. He called by God to be on the scene and be Israel's prophet as they transition from a nation that has their identity in Babylon, doesn't really know who they are. They haven't worshipped in the temple for 70 years, and now they've been let out, and they're sort of trying to build this temple, but there's construction issues, and they don't know what's going on. There, there's this generation that's lived outside of the temple generation, and they, they don't really know how to reestablish themselves as a nation. And here comes Ezra, um, the prophet for this period in Israel's life. And, and, and they were dealing with an issue. As they were reestablishing themselves as a nation, they began dealing with an issue. And it's in Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. It says, After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and they've mingled and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them, and the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Seventy years they've spent in the foreign land, and they dug into the culture of this foreign land. And they're so far into it that they've, they've even taken some of these foreigners and the neighboring people as their wives. They've become family with some of these people. And when King Cyrus tells them to go home, and a lot of them actually do go home, they just don't know how to synchronize this life with going back to the life that God has called them to be as Israelites, as a nation who are supposed to be an example to others, who are supposed to show who God is to others. The text says they did not keep themselves separate from their neighbors. And it goes on to describe these neighbors like 
They, it says they were like the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and even the Egyptians, the ones who had them in bondage before. It's not saying that these were the neighbors, but their neighbors were like them. And these, these Canaanites and Hittites, they, they were the ones that they were supposed to eradicate as they came through to be in the promised land. But those neighbors bear the same fruit as the nations which they had to conquer on their way out of their first exile. God's people were not supposed to live in close contact and harmony with those people because of their actions, because of what they did. But while they were in the Babylon time, while they were over there in Babylon, they picked up on this. And not only did they pick up on it, they brought it into their families. Now, I want to pause right there and say real quick that the Mosaic law does not in and of itself forbid marriage to foreigners. Because some of you know, some of our page, the patriarchs in the Old Testament and the heroes were married to foreigners. But the problem lies with the danger of affinity and even covenantal affinity with these nations who are diametrically opposed to who God is and what God was doing with the nation of Israel. They didn't care for God. Their actions were bad. And in fact, if the Israelites are united with them, they influence the Israelites in the worst possible way. Let me ask you something. If the people that are influencing you in the worst possible way are those people who are closest to you, how bad could that be? Um, how many of you... Uh, how many of you, as you're going through life, as you're going through the day, um, say this to yourself? You do something, you're doing something, you're going through the day, and you say this to yourself, oh, oh man, my mother says that, or my father does that. I'm going to pick on my dad. He's here today, actually, um, and I'm going to pick on him a little bit. When we were growing up, um, <laughs> my, uh, my brothers and I were always in the car. Um, we were always going somewhere, always on a road trip. And he used to do this thing um, where we'd stay at the light, we'd be watching it, and he would start talking to the red light and say something like, Okay, lights, let's go. Time to go. And then he'll say it again, All right, lights, let's go, go, go. <laughs> As if three times would actually make it change. He said, Go, 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 in his very thick Tanzanian accent. So the other day, which was like this morning, <laughs> I was driving, and I'm at a red light, and I'm tapping my hands on the wheels to the beat. I look at the light, and I'm just like, let's go, go, go. <laughs> I was like, where did that come from? My dad does that. The people that we are closest to influence us, and they either influence us for good, or they influence us for evil. Calamesa, here's my point. There's no one who influences us more than those we are close to. From the moment you wake up to the moment you fall asleep, there are forces pulling you back and forth, some for good and some for evil. You see, this is what Ezra had to deal with. Some scholars say that when Ezra arrived on the scene, he knew what was going on with the rest of the Israelites and the leaders and the priests. He knew that, that they, had, 
they had cleaved themselves onto these other nations that didn't care for what God was doing. And for four months, Ezra stood by and waited for them to realize what they were doing and waited for them to come to God in repentance, not out of coercion, but out of conviction. For four months, Ezra waited. And finally, someone comes forward and says, Ezra, look, we've been trying to be at this, you know, this new back having a temple thing for a while, and, and it's really not working. We're, we're trying to rebuild the nation here, but to be honest, there's, there's something going on, Ezra. We can't really dedicate ourselves to this because there's something that's permeating us, something that we can't, we can't move on until we address this. And it's the fact that we have united ourselves with those who are opposed to God. Those things that were in our past, those things that, um, that, that, that we picked up while we were in exile, those things that we picked up while we were in Babylon, now that we've been let go and that some of us have come back, we're still kind of holding on to them. And Ezra, it gets even worse. It's our families. It's our wives. It's our children. And so Ezra falls into this state of prayer and weeping and confession. And it's in Ezra 9, verse 13. He says, What has happened to us is the result of our evil deeds, our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and then given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands? Shall we break your commands again and intermarry with these peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? survivor? Lord, God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. Many of us can relate to that guilt that sort of gut-wrenching feeling. And some of us have probably been at that point where we can't even stand in front of God, where we feel like we can't even approach God because of the guilt that's in us. In the youth room today, we were talking about this a little bit, and, and some of the kids brought up Judas and how in his guilt, he just couldn't, he couldn't even live anymore and decided to hang himself. But Ezra has a message for the Israelites, fresh out of their time in Babylon. Ezra has a message for us today, fresh out of our lives, wherever we came from. God has pulled us into his presence. And this is Ezra's message. 9 verse 6, it says, I'm too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you, because our sins are higher than our heads. Our guilt has reached the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests, our leaders, have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hands of foreign kings as it is today. This is the first part that we can learn from Ezra. It takes the utmost humility for us to realize who we are, what we've done, and come before God and say, you know what, God? 
I was wrong. I was wrong. The nation came to a point where they don't revel in their sin, but they confess it. We have to come to a point in our own lives where we don't revel in our sin, but we confess it. Ezra 9, verse 10 to 12, this is the second part. But, but now, our God, this is Ezra, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples, by their detestable practices. They have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land. Leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. Some scholars say that Ezra was the prophet who was called to the Israelites during this time after Babylon to remind them about God's commandments to remind them about God's law, to remind them that God had a design for this nation where they were supposed to be an example. And this design was not a form of religious bondage, but it was a form of spiritual freedom. And Ezra was to remind them of these commands. And lastly, there's something else that Ezra says to them, and this is my favorite part. After they have come humbly before the Lord and after they've realized that they're not doing what God has told them to do in his commandments, Ezra says this still. He talks about it in 9 verse 15, but I like how he expresses it in 9 verse 8 better in the middle of his prayer. He says, but now, this is 9 verse 8, but now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. So our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of king, in the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. He has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. How many of you feel that when you come to God, you can begin to rebuild your life? And repair the ruins. What Ezra is telling the Israelites is God has been so good to you. And God has been so gracious to you. You have been called out of bondage again. What is so precious about the place you are coming from that you cannot just let it go? Don't you see that when God called you back, he didn't want you bringing all of the baggage and luggage and craziness and whatever it is that you're bringing from that life. God wants you to come back empty-handed so he can fill you with his love. Ezra 10 um, says that the husband sent away their pagan wives and children and began the process of rebuilding their nation. And I wish I could tell you that there was a happier ending. I wish I could tell you that these families stayed together and, and, and the families all became God-fearing people and they lived happily ever after, but then I would be lying and pastors don't do that. Um, or we're not supposed to, at least. Um, that's not what the text says. The text talks about how much hurt and pain there could be 
as a result of the sin. And the lesson for us is the same. Sometimes when we choose Christ, many of you know this personally, when we choose Christ, life doesn't just magically smooth itself out. It just seems to get messier. But that shouldn't discourage us. One scholar says that Ezra cannot be fully understood unless it's looked at in the light of the New Testament and the Gospels and the grace that God has given us and the grace that we see through Jesus in the New Testament. I think of, I think of the thief on the cross. I think of the thief who asked for, for, for Jesus' forgiveness right then and there. And he was granted it. I think of Mark 2, when the four friends bring the paralytic to Jesus, they lower him through the roof, and Jesus not only heals him, but declares him forgiven. I think of verse 17 in that same chapter of Mark 2, when, when it says that Jesus did not come for the healthy, but for the sick. Jesus came for the sinners. I think of Romans 3, verse 9, which says, Hey, there is not even one person who is righteous. We're all sinners. We're all trapped in Babylon. Or should I say that we are sinners, but we were trapped in Babylon? Because there is one who is called Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, who has rescued us and who has pulled us out and called us out of Babylon, called us out of this place, and and, and we came to this everlasting kingdom, this kingdom where the blind see again and the, the deaf hear again and the dumb talk again, the lame walk again, the poor, the sick, and the widow, they're cared for. The child has value. The woman has value. The first become last. The last become the first. Everything is completely upside down, but all of a sudden, everything in our lives is right side up because we have Jesus. Because we have Jesus, and because God is in control, and because God has freed us from this bondage of sin into spiritual freedom that is enjoyed through the person of Jesus Christ. Why then, church, when God calls us out of this bondage, why do we insist on bringing those chains with us? Why do we often insist on bringing them with us onto God's side? Some of you know I'm going to close with this. Some of you know that I'm a huge NASCAR fan. And some of you right now are like, really? And you're about to faint. Yes, I am a huge NASCAR fan. I've been to three races. I'm working on it. I'm going to go to more. I will do Daytona next year. But I want to tell you about one particular race. Um, let's see if we can get that picture up there. What you see right here is the Lowe's number 48. This guy is Jimmy Johnson. He has won the championship five years in a row. Five years in a row. I don't know that there's many other sports, professional sports organizations who have done anything like that. And, and this Lowe's number 48, right here, he was on the way to his fifth championship. He was on his fourth championship. This is a race last year sometime. And, and during this race, his pit crew, these guys who change the tires and knock out dents and do all that stuff in 16 seconds, don't expect that next time you go get an oil change. They take more like 16 hours or so. But these guys do all that in 16 seconds, and his pit crew had been screwing up for him in this race. 
And the car owner, his name is Rick Hendricks, owns four, three other cars in the NASCAR Sprint Cup. The car owner says, hey, all right, I have three other teams, but for all intents and purposes, they're losers today. You are the winner. You are the champion. You're going for five times in a row. And these guys are screwing it up for you. And so he went ahead and pulled the pit crew from the number 24 DuPont Chevrolet of Jeff Gordon. And if you pay attention, you see a Lowe's number 48 on his car, but his pit crew is a DuPont pit crew from the number 24. And Rick Hendricks takes them and says, hey, look, today you're not on the losing team. By the way, Jeff Gordon, the number 24 DuPont, finally won a race last week after like 70 tries. So kudos to you. Jeff Gordon fans. <laughs> I myself am a number 22 Shell Pennzoil Kurt Busch guy because he's from Vegas. <laughs> and so am I. So there. Um, so Rick Hendricks pulls the crew off of this losing team. They've lost 50, 40, 30 races in a row. Pulls them off of this losing team. Puts them onto this winning team and says, hey, Today, you guys have four championships behind you. And there is a fifth one that you are fighting for. You are not part of the DuPont Chevrolet losing team. You are now part of this championship winning team of the Lowe's 48. But as you can see, they are still wearing the loser's clothes. Friends, that's what we do. Often, daily, that's what I do. God has called us out of this losing team. He has pulled us from this losing team. He has put us onto this winning team. And we insist on bringing our losers' clothes with us. When Jesus says, you are no longer bound to those things. You are free. You have been released from these chains. You are a champion Read Revelation. In the end, we win. We are champions. I died for your sins. I have released you from these chains. But why do we insist, after having changed sides onto the winning team, why are we still wearing the loser's clothes? It could be because we don't come empty-handed. We come with our hands full of the junk of our past. And instead of giving it up and offering it up to Christ, we just continue to hold on to it. If I started making a list for myself, it would take us all day, and some of us are hungry. If you started making a list, I'm not going to make any lists. All of us know the junk that we bring from bondage. But God has called us out of Babylon. Today, Jesus is our modern-day Ezra. He's pointing to God's law. Jesus is pointing to repentance and confession. Jesus demonstrated that God's grace is more than any other human could ever grant us. Jesus will give us a new name. Jesus will take our losing uniforms made of scarlet 
make them white as snow, and make them winning uniforms. And guess what? When we get there, it won't be a number 24 on our back. It won't be a number 22 on our back as much as I would love to have a number 22 on my back. It won't be a number 48 on my back. It'll be a word, and it'll say, saved. And it'll be by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it'll be by his grace. I want to end with the words inspired, the inspiring words from Ezra from his prayer in chapter 9, verse 8. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant, giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief from our bondage. Take that little relief today. Take a moment right now and experience from the bondage of this world right now. And so, God, as, as we embrace the freedom that you have given us, as we open up our hands, we open them empty. Fill us with your love, God so that we can fill others with your love. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.